I'm Jana Marin, and you're listening to More to the Story, the podcast that's all about creative nonfiction and the power of sharing your personal story. Tell me a story, tell me truth. I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I'll tell mine to you. Welcome to episode number four of More to the Story, a show that is all about something near and dear to my heart, telling true stories and sharing them with the world. In addition to this podcast, I also publish a literary magazine called Under the Gum Tree, which is dedicated to creative nonfiction and visual art. The magazine is published quarterly in digital and print. If you enjoy the readings on this show, I encourage you to check out the complete stories by purchasing a single issue or getting a subscription. Your purchase directly supports the work of the writers and artists we publish. Digital subscriptions are $2 a month, and print subscriptions are $7 a month, and all that info is online at underthegumtree.com. On today's episode of More to the Story, I'm joined by Timothy Kenny, a previous contributor to Under the Gumtree who has a new book out this year. Tim is a former USA Today foreign editor, a nonprofit foundation executive, a Fulbright scholar, and associate professor of journalism at the University of Connecticut. In addition to USA Today, his reporting and op-ed pieces have appeared in the Toronto Star, the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal Europe, and the Chicago Tribune, among many others. His narrative nonfiction has appeared in several literary magazines, including the Kenyan Review Online, the Louisville Review, the Gettysburg Review, and of course, Under the Gumtree. His piece, Turning 66 and 6 in Umbria, appears in the January 2013 issue of Under the Gumtree. Tim's first book is a collection of creative nonfiction entitled Far Country, Stories from Abroad and Other Places, and it was just published in May of 2015. Before we get to the interview, here is Tim reading an excerpt from his new book. I thought I'd read the first story from my collection that's called Far Country, Stories from Abroad and Other Places, and this one is entitled Dark Nights and Feral Dogs. Night runs deep and quiet in eastern Connecticut. The first time my big city sisters came to visit, I switched off the car headlights at the foot of our driveway. Both women gasped, their breath pulled into their lungs like a turkey baster, sucking hot fat from a pan. They're from Chicago. They hadn't seen the dark for a long time. It startled them and made them feel vulnerable, perhaps slightly afraid. Real darkness can do that. When Hurricane Irene lashed Connecticut in August of 2011, my family and 700,000 other nutmeg staters fell into a twilight zone that split the difference between the modern and, say, the 18th century. Things were fine during the day. At night, things changed. Powerless for six days, it was not long before my small Connecticut town morphed into places that I had worked or lived. Pristina, Bucharest, Kabul, Sarajevo, where power was often fueled by gasoline-fired generators, and night pulled itself tight around the house until morning, festering like an untended wound. Pristina flopped like a fish on a dock in 2002 when I lived there. Power quit without warning, whipsawing sections of the city from the 21st century of life, warmth, 
light, refrigeration, and television to flashlight living or darkness. No one knew when the power would die. Its return brought simultaneous relief and annoyance that it had suddenly disappeared in the first place. I kept water in plastic jugs in the bathroom after my shower abruptly quit while I was washing my hair. I used the water from the toilet tank to rinse out most of the shampoo. It provided a valuable lesson. There was no generator at my house despite my monthly $1,900 a month rent. It's high cost, the result of well-paid European and American internationals working in the city. When the power fled, I read by flashlight under blankets until I went to bed. Usually, lights, heat, and water returned by morning. Occasionally, they did not, and I would wake up to see my breath circulate small white clouds in the bedroom. We all complained to each other, expats, locals, government officials nominally in charge, but we knew nothing could be done. On the one hand, Pristina, Kosovo was also the safest place I ever lived. Property crime was negligible, muggings and murders unheard of. Still, I made it a point to return to my house in the hills of the city's Tashlija district before midnight. Light from homes that lined my unnamed road shone rarely after 10 p.m. Hardworking people go to bed early in Kosovo. My walk uphill at night through the last two cobblestone blocks frequently put me on edge. In the day, the walk was a mixture of distant mountain beauty and fetid water streaming down a gutter that ran through the middle of the road. At night in the bleak and unblinking darkness, I wished for night vision goggles and an M16 rifle. It was best to be inside after full darkness fell. Street dogs formed packs at night. Strays joined mutts let loose by their owners to roam the hills in my neighborhood above the city, wild and unfettered. They were not to be trusted. In the day, Kosovo's feral dogs were skittish and fearful. They kept to the edges of the streets and knew their place in a secular Muslim culture that is not fond of pets. They looked furtively over their shoulders at pedestrians. Loud noises turned them sideways in fright. Their bodies forced into a cringing U-shape of submission. The dark of an unlit night altered the equation. It was not wise to wander alone through the streets of Tashlija when true darkness reigned after midnight. I paid attention and I was lucky. Once, trailed by three dogs and a growing group of yapping animals, I was forced to slip into my landlord's yard through his sturdy iron front gate instead of walking to my usual entrance at the back of the house. I took few chances walking the streets of Pristina after dark. That's because I lived in Pristina after I had lived in Bucharest, where I first learned about street dogs. Pristina is not Bucharest. Bucharest is a far bigger city with many more feral dogs. Many, many more dogs. So I'm going to stop here. That's just a, a few paragraphs into this story. Thank you, Tim. And welcome to more to the story. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So let's just get started with um, your background. Tell us about how you got into writing and then particularly creative nonfiction. Well, I've been a journalist for a long time. Um, I graduated from the uh, University of Oregon in 1972 with a master's degree in journalism. I've been 
basically practicing it in one form or another, another ever since. Um, in 1989, I was working with USA Today as the foreign editor, and I, I spent the last five years there as the foreign editor, starting out as a reporter. And the newspaper was starting to change, the world was starting to change, and, and, and we began to do an awful lot of work overseas, beginning with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, November. And so because of that, I began to take uh, an awful lot of trips overseas through Central and Eastern Europe, following the fall of the wall. And after that, I worked for a, an organization called the Freedom Forum, uh, which spent an awful lot of its time trying to help improve journalism in these parts of the world. So that sort of was the beginning of my of my travel overseas. Um, in all, I've been to around 45 countries. And most recently, I've, I, I seem to have spent more, more time in, in um, Central Asia and in some sort of... Uh, even more out-of-the-way places than Eastern Europe was at the time, back at the, in the first part of the 90s. So the Caucasus as well. And, and, and so some of these places have, have afforded me a chance to uh, see things and, and, and meet people who most of us, most Americans, that is, would not have the chance to meet. And it also afforded me, after I retired from the University of Connecticut, I was teaching journalism there, and after I retired... Um, even while I was there, I was also writing creative nonfiction for the first time. And it was just a wonderful relief to be able to, to sort of free myself of the constraints um, of, of regular fact-based journalism. The, the use of facts is the same, it remains the same. It's the core of, of what, I, what I'm doing, what I try to do, to remain as accurate as I can be. But it also gives the writer creative nonfiction, gives the writer a chance to, to use his or her ability to fashion the story in a narrative that makes sense and to use to use uh, dialogue that can go on more extensively than I ever could in, in a news story. And it just, it, it, it's a, an, an immense relief and it provided and does provide still, of course, uh, just an awful lot of freedom to, to say what I want. And it just, I really like doing it. I've always liked writing in the first place with this, the ability to, to write the way I want and, and not have people sort of mess with it. I mean, writing for a newspaper <laughs> for journalism is just brutal because, you know, as you know, anybody who's got a pencil or a pen or, or a computer in front of them and has the ability to change what you've written will, in fact, be unable to stop this urge and will change your, your copy, your story, sometimes for the better. Um, sure. I will ag agree to that, but... Some sometimes just for the sake of change. Sure. So, were you writing creative nonfiction simultaneously to still doing journalism and newspaper work, or was that completely after your journalism career? It was after. Uh, it was after the the daily journalism career. So when I when I got to uh, to UConn and began to write. Um, uh, creative nonfiction. It was also because it, it was simultaneous to to writing a lot of op-ed pieces and and doing stories that w would appear in newspapers and, and publications, magazines, um, as ordinary journalism. So I was doing those two things simultaneously. But it's you know the the creative nonfiction was just so much more interesting. But I had a hard time focusing on it and getting down to doing it until I was um, not working full time. Right. So it just, right. It just helped them. It helped immensely. Did you feel that 
kind of shifting into creative nonfiction was an easy shift for you from journalism? I mean, it sounds like you were more interested in that type of writing, but I often get people asking me about that difference between journalism and creative nonfiction because of the fact-based writing. And so the question is always like, where's the line? Like how, how do you define that line between the journalism and the creative nonfiction? And how do you shift between the two as a writer? I found it a lot easier to, to do them than perhaps some people could. I, I, maybe it's because uh, I, I was writing um, op-ed pieces for quite a while and, and um, it just, it probably, the writing of those um, op-ed pieces probably, which are analysis as well as um, personal assessments of various kinds of political situations and, you know, those kinds of things. But it gave me, uh, the light sort of went off, the light bulb turned on and I realized that there's a vast area of writing that I wasn't uh, tapping into that I could. There, there were um, kinds of the, the kinds of stories I wanted to write were those that needed detail without trying to tell people my thoughts, but just trying to lay out as well as I could the way I saw or the way I believed a place uh, was working and the way people who lived there were were reacting and how they lived and how they conducted them conducted themselves their lives. And I found that to be much easier than I than I thought it was going to be because I. The use of the facts that I saw and um, the observations, I was I try to be meticulous about that. I try to make sure that that what I'm telling people is exactly the truth as I have seen it and as I believed it to be. And I would do research for that. I, I do research for, for the stories that I write when necessary. I mostly rely on, on personal observation and notes and interviews with other people who I'm seeing in these in these places I'm going to and talking with. But I found it to be probably easier than, than um, I had imagined. Once I got going, I just realized that this was the kind of writing I sort of had been building up to do um, for most of my writing career. And I was just so happy to be free of the restraints that I had been, that, that, that I had to engage because of, of the kind of writing that I was doing. And so I'm sort of floundering here. I'm going far afield from your initial <laughs> question, but I hope this, I think I'll stop now. I hope some of that made some sense. Yeah, I think it did. Well, from what you've read and from the some of the pieces of yours that I've read, you're obviously really exploring this sense of place. And, you know, that's even evident in the title of your book collection. So I was going to ask about how did you come to this understanding of all your travels and all your experience, you're now kind of distilling them into these pieces about the places you've been and in the excerpt you read, you're almost comparing different places to each other. Um, and so I'm wondering about sort of what you aim to accomplish with that that idea of comparison and kind of examining all the different places that you've been in your life. Right. There are, there are a couple of different kinds of things that I'm trying to do. One, one is to sort of explain to people who aren't used to going to, or have, haven't had not had the opportunity to go to some of these far flung places as I have. I've been just fortunate to, to be able to, to go to an awful lot of places and have somebody else pay for it, which is the best part because they're 
<laughs> my story and that costs a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but to explain to people the kinds of things that I saw and hope that in, in pointing out the smaller details of life, the ordinary things that people see, um, that gives some different kinds of impressions of people and the places as opposed to trying to paint a larger picture. So that was sort of one very obvious and, and straightforward thing that I'm trying to do is just sort of tell people about these kinds of places in a, in a, in a different way, hopefully. But I also try to explain um, the way that I felt and the and the disconnection that I felt uh, mostly. I was constantly under the impression, if you will, um, that no matter how hard I tried, I was always going to be an observer on the outside looking in these places where I was for a variety of reasons. Uh, and you can imagine what they were because I didn't speak the languages. I sp ended up speaking some Romanian because I'd been there for quite a while, but it was, you know, very, very minimal. I could sort of keep up with conversations, but not enough. I didn't speak it well enough um, to feel like I was able to carry on difficult conversations with people, abstract conversations. But so there are the obvious kinds of things that kept kept me um, at a distance and away from uh, the, the places where I was. I couldn't fully engage in them. But at the same time, I write about the places where I've lived in this country. And the feelings are almost the same. It, it's There are awful lots of different regional uh, issues that we have in this country. And I've, and I've found the farther I get from, from where I was, where I grew up, which was Detroit, um, the harder it was in this country to, to also become sort of fully adjusted or acclimated to the places I've lived. Um, and I've lived in, I lived in Oregon. I've lived in Virginia for long periods of time. I, I was from Michigan and I'm living now in, in Connecticut. Um, and even when I went back to Detroit, after having been gone for um, something like 17 years, the city had changed so dramatically and, and, and the issues that it was trying to, to face and overcome um, were just—they were astounding to me. I was just—I was just sort of mind-boggled. I was unable to actually get my head around what had happened to this fourth-largest city in the country and how how it had fallen from grace into this into this disgraceful period of its of its existence, with vast tracts of, of Detroit just empty lots and again feral dogs running around in packs. They were not uncommon. Yeah. So this piece that you wrote, read for us, Dark Nights and Feral Dogs, we have this really strong image of the darkness and of the dogs, of course. So can you talk a little bit about the impetus for this piece and how it all came together for you? The impetus for, the, for the, this, in this story, I wrote this thing in probably, um, probably an hour, just boom, it just came out of my head, huh. uh, following, following this hurricane in 2011. Because what happens later on in the story, um, um, at the end, I'm joined by, so there was a loud, loud explosion. And this loud explosion came from a propane tank that was blowing, that had blown up in about, it was about a mile away in somebody's house. And this house was essentially destroyed and two people died. So in the middle of the darkness, it was probably nine o'clock when this happened, um, this explosion occurred and it emptied the neighborhood and all the men came running out under the street sort of flashing their flashlights around and wondering what the heck's going on and none of us really know and, and really what we were doing was just sort of 
getting together to see if there was going to be another explosion and if there was something that was a real threat or just trying to figure out what was happening. We had no idea. And it, it, it reminded me so much of all these other kinds of places where I've been where you're just left sort of, because the darkness left um, to fend for yourself, as it were. You know, you just, it was impossible sometimes to figure out what was going on um, and feel like, feeling like an outsider in some of these places. And it was the same in this in this little town where I'd been living for you know several years by this time when it happened, and it reminded me, and I, I mentioned this in the story as well about Cabo. I was I was in Cabo with this fellow who was uh, one of my colleagues, and we were chatting outside this place where I was working um, for most of May in 2010, and we heard this huge explosion, just made us both hunch our shoulders and kind of jump and. Uh, and he, you know, he was—he lived there. He was used to these kinds of things. But even when they happened, he was—he was frightened about it. And um, I asked him, "What what happened? What was what was the problem?" And he said, "Oh, well, geez, you know, I don't know. These things happen all the time. We never know what they were." Which drove me crazy. So I—I I made a few calls when I got back to my office to find out what it was. And it was the army blowing up some ordnance that they had. They had captured, you know, weapons from people, and they were getting rid of them. Which helped somewhat. I mean, it didn't. It didn't. <laughs> it didn't resolve <laughs> the issue of explosions in the middle of the day for no apparent reason. But right. at least there is at least I could sort of tack a reason onto it. Was, oh, okay, well, this 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 makes sense. I understand what was going on. And it was the same sort of um, uneasiness when this propane tank exploded and ruined somebody's house that brought back all of these other things I had seen elsewhere in these other kinds of places where I was sort of fearful of the dark and how how this um, this darkness had just. Uh, it negated so much in our lives and made us completely the same, uh, if if you will, in so much of, of what we undertake as human activity. Yes, I mean that's exactly what I was just going to say. Is I really like how the this piece is really speaking to darkness is the same no matter where you are. Exactly. Um, some of the circumstances are going to be different. Some places are going to be a little more dangerous than others. Um, but it's 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 like this terrible leveler and i'm not especially afraid of the dark it's not like i have some you know <laughs> fear for the, i really don't it's just that sure it's this, it's this sort of unifying um fear that we all have when we actually see the dark Most right it's said that we you know I, I visit my sisters in the, in the city all the time in chicago and it's never dark there at least not where they live and i don't like it's dark any place in the city but it's it's pretty much dark out here where i live in the country at night and um when you live in that in that sort of environment, and there's there's stuff happening around you, then you're not quite sure what it is. It makes your it makes your sense of uh, of the way the world works a lot different. And and that's sort of another thing that I'm trying to trying to get at. People have to cope with and 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 take care of their own lives in different ways depending on the circumstances. So let's talk about the book a little bit. Um, what how many um, pieces are in it, and how did the book come together for you? It just came out in May, is that right? Yes, it did. It came out in May. Um, Bottom Dog Press out of here in Ohio is the publisher. It's uh, actually, a, as these things go, as an independent uh, book publisher, it's fairly well known. Um, and let's see, how many? I could have counted. One, two, three, four, nine, two. I've got about um, 15 stories here. Okay. Um, more like 12. I'm, I'm counting them. I mean, I, I must have known them one time, but I, <laughs> I don't have the number. Um, and, and these stories, not exclusively, but most of them um, 
were uh, published first in other kinds of magazines like yours. Mm -hmm. And the versions that I that I have published in this uh, of this book are sometimes different, sometimes not. But um, largely, they are a collection of, of, of stories from overseas, as well as places uh, stories from uh, places here in this country, including Detroit, as I mentioned. Um, um, also, things like a story that I that I wrote about listening to a bunch of old guys sitting around in this locker room in in, uh, in Coventry, Connecticut, where I live. And I have two stories at the end of the book uh, about being an older father. And one of which you you were kind enough to publish in your good magazine, uh, called on and turning sixty six and six in Umbria. So mm -hmm. I'm I I'm quite an older father. I don't know anybody else who's uh, as old as I am who's got a daughter with a sixty year age difference. Right. And right. This is a fascinating topic for me. It's something that I'm working on uh, as my next as my next book. So tell us a little bit about the process of selecting the pieces to compile a book manuscript what's that what was that process like for you it was difficult because i i was like i, I there are three different parts to a, a long story that i wrote about about kosovo called um, unknown zone recollections of a year in kosovo and um kosovo was was an extremely difficult place for me to get my head around it was enjoyable in many many ways but it was also very hard it's a small, very tight, um, secular Muslim now country. It wasn't a country then. It is now, of course, in 2008. It became an independent nation, independent from Serbia. Um, and that was an interesting place to to um, to live. In a, and so I, I guess that's why I wrote a longer story with sort of three distinct um, aspects to it. But putting this book together was not just a compilation of the stories that I've written, but also a... Um, Difficult in the way of trying to trying to make these stories produce um, a similar theme throughout, but at the same time uh, register with people in different ways. Um, the title of the book, um, Far Country, comes from the last story, the first section uh, that I've written. And it's called A Month in a Far Country. And it was, I got the title from part of a, um, a quote that I read from Jack London, who, who wrote a book um, called The Son of the Wolf, and In a Far Country was one of the stories that he produced. And the quote that resonated with me was, this is from, from London's book, when a man journeys into a far country, he must be prepared to forget many things he has learned and to acquire such customs as are inherent with existence in a new land. And that's... Obviously true, but at the same time, um, it's not something that we would probably all do as a matter of course. I think what we tend to do is, when we go to a new place, is compare it to the place that we know. And there's there's nothing wrong with this. It, it, it's just what we have to do. Um, what I try to do is is understand a place that I'm visiting or living in at the time um, by stepping outside of that conventional um, notion of trying to compare it to where I'm from and what I know, if possible. It's extraordinarily difficult to do that. That was what was one of the things that spurred me to, to, to write this book, trying to get a sense of, of how other places worked without losing who you were and where you came from, um, 
but at the same time trying to understand what it was that drove people who were to whom fate, for example, was an important concept. Mm-hmm. Um, it was those kinds of, of observations as well as other things that I that I, I enjoyed the challenge, and that, that's why putting the stories together was something that was a task that I would that I really enjoy doing. Um, it's going to be a while before I do it again, though, because it was it was tricky. It really was. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I wanted to ask about this idea of place. Obviously, hugely important to you and your work and to this book in particular. So I'm wondering about whether that was something that was an intentional pursuit for you as you were going throughout your career and just kind of determining who you were going to be as a writer or if it was something that sort of came to you as a result of your career as a journalist. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Okay. It came to me finally in the end. Frankly, you know, if I was would have been, even if I would have been 45, I'm 60, I'll be 69 next month. If I would have been 45, I couldn't have written this book. I don't know. You know, maybe just me, but I, you know, it took a long time for me to get my head around what it was that I was um, interested in um, and and to try to make the kinds of connections that I'm hopeful of making in this book, that I intended to, to make in this book, and perhaps and perhaps I have made, at least I, I hope that some light has been shed on this, on this notion of place, because um, it's very abstract. And at the same time, it's it's very um, concrete for all of us, but you lose your sense of exactly how place is formed and exactly what your place in the world might be if you begin to see a lot of other places. I remember going back to Detroit, and uh, this is uh, September. I went back to September for for a little while for a variety of reasons, and so I went and saw my um, my college roommate. He was also retired, lives on this nice little lake up, up north of, um, there's a lot of little lakes in the Detroit area, so he lives up on this nice little lake, and we're just sitting around talking and everything. And I realized I would have been exactly like this guy if I hadn't gone to these other places. And there's nothing wrong with this guy. He's a good guy, but his, his world is, is, is uh, prescribed by a different set of circumstances than mine. And he looks at the world differently, and he, he hasn't traveled too many places, and he... he uh, just has a different sense of how things work than I do. And I realized I would have been, you know, the tribe that I came from that I grew up with, with was basically his tribe. It was just, you know, sort of Roman Catholic thing. And, you know, uh, it's it just we all live in the same suburbs. And, you know, I don't think I knew any Jewish people or any black people until I went to high school in Detroit. So, and his upbringing was very much the same. So all of that changed over the course of the years for me. And so between the two of our lives and how they've, intersected and then gone their separate ways again. Uh, it's just, it was, it just hit home that I would have been, I would have been him if I hadn't done these other kinds of things. Right, right. Yeah, that's a really eye-opening experience for sure to kind of revisit your, your past in a, in a, in a sense. Yeah, it was surprising and it was stunning when I realized I, I, I was talking to myself like, like I was when I was, you know, 19 and 20. We sure. Went we went to the University of Michigan and there's like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> it, was, it was suddenly just really, I, it weirded me out. It just yeah. It's like having a, um, a ghost from, you know, 
Detroit passed or something like that yeah. <laughs> visit you. Yeah, it, 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 it sort of came on the heels of having gone through. I I had driven around Detroit and talked to people for a couple of days, and that place was completely and wholly different. It just I could I didn't. I mean, I recognized the parts downtown Woodward Avenue and that sort of core section, and then after that, it was just these vast empty lots, and you know, it was a mess. And so to go from that, which was disconcerting, to to going back to seeing what life was like for this guy, which would have been the same kind of settled proper life, if you will, that I suspect I would have had if I would have, you know, worked at a local newspaper in Detroit all my life and then retired up to a sort of place where he's where he's living. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I don't mean to sound critical. It's just that it, it, it turned out to be vastly different than, than the kinds of things that, I, that I've done in my life. Right. So with all the places that you've been and traveled and lived, do you have a favorite or is that sort of like trying to choose your favorite child if you have more than one? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, you know, I don't have a favorite place so much, but I, I have favorite people. Yeah. And and they're they're from all kinds of different places. Um, the last place I went for an, for an extended period of time um I went to Baku, Azerbaijan, and in, in, uh, at the end of, of 2013, again, it's one of these short-term Fulbrights. And I taught for a month, um, taught six people who were supposed to be graduate students in journalism. But like a lot of the reality of what I would consider, what you would consider to be a graduate student, was in fact not graduate-level work. So we, but we had a really good time together, and I, 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 um, I liked those people an awful lot. They were in their middle twenties. A couple of them were a little bit older. And so it was a different experience than what I was used to with, with undergraduates at the University of Connecticut. And because those college kids were the same as, you know, I mean, all college kids seem to be, you know, they sort of fit a certain a certain type. But these people were a little bit older and they were much different in, in again, their outlook on the world and in a place like Azerbaijan that's essentially, you know, it's the government's it's quasi democracy it's not really democracy it's 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 just it runs much more along the same sort of principles as the Soviet Union used to frankly mm-hmm. so but it, it was really an enjoyable experience and and I I appreciated being able to go to a place that sort of harkened back to the kinds of places I was going to back in the early 90s you know is which I probably sound odd sounds odd but I kind of miss the old Soviet stuff. It it was it was it was so fascinating. So it was easy to figure out. It was us. It was them. It, it just it, and it was, but it, all these places were were different. But at the same time, um, they looked the same because the Soviet architecture, in many ways, right. It it was um, it was always fascinating to go to these different countries, and, and so I, I I really enjoyed it. And their Baku is changing very rapidly, so it. it it was sort of a good time to go in and see this place before the old, the old aspects, the old Soviet aspects were completely just disappeared. I'm sure they're going to disappear within the next ten years. Mm-hmm. A lot of oil money there, so things are changing rapidly. Well, it all sounds very fascinating. All your travels and your life, career, and all of that. So definitely worth checking out Far Country to read and learn more about some of your experiences. Um, you mentioned that. You're working on a new book, possibly. Yes, I'm. I'm. Um, I've. I've been toying this, and I have an awful lot of material. Probably written. I don't know how many words I've got. Maybe thirty thousand words about being an older father. And I'm right. Um, I'm in the middle of, of um, doing more of that. I'm trying to sit down. And, but as I said before, it's tough to sort of. I'm still in the process of marketing my book, and 
which is a brutal experience I would wish <laughs> I would wish on nobody. But um, once I get past all this stuff, I think I'll be able to sit down and, and begin that process again. And I, interestingly, so the story that I wrote that appeared in, in your magazine, uh, the one about Umbria, um, it started out on a vacation, a family vacation that my wife and daughter and I went on to Italy um, three years ago. So we're, we're on Friday, a week from today, we're going to go off to Italy again, up to the northern part of Italy and then to Croatia, and we'll be gone for three weeks. And so I'm hoping that I can I can use this uh, new experience to sort of kickstart my own imagination and continue on. And I probably will write about the first 10 years of my daughter's life uh, and, and just try to keep it a... a in a, in a, it may not be a full book, but but keep it in that sort of more manageable decade of of, of time, and uh, and see where this thing goes. So, I'm hopeful of of, of producing something that would be, if not a book length, at least a fairly long story. You know, sometime uh, over the course of the next year. Nice. That sounds really like the perfect chunk of time to to deal with. It's Ten years, and for a child, that's a a lot of change and development happens in that first ten years of life. Yeah, no, certainly, absolutely true, and I, I, I've, I'm starting to see that she's, she's going to be nine, and, and nine's, nine's far different than six. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to wrap up. I really appreciate your time, and it has been great to talk with you today. Where can folks find you online and learn more about your work and what you have coming down the pike? Um, Far Country Stories from Abroad and Other Places is available from Bottom Dog Press. It's also available on Amazon, uh, Kindle Edition, uh, Barnes & Noble, all the usual kinds of places, and if you're lucky, your local bookstore. Um, if somebody wants to contact me, they can feel free to, to send me an email. My, it's, it's, my address is timothy.kenny, K-E-N-N-Y, in the year 2011-2011 at Gmail. Um, I'd be happy to, to talk to anybody if they have any questions or I've got a few books. I've got some events that are coming up in the future, so I've got a few books at home. I would be happy to, to sell somebody a book that's got an autograph signature on there. If that's something that they want to do, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Thank you, Tim. It's been so great to talk to you. Thanks, thanks for your time, Jan. I appreciate it. Timothy Kenny is the author of Far Country, Stories from Abroad and Other Places, published by Bottom Dog Press. Look for it online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Next time on More to the Story, I talk with an under-the-gum tree contributor about Orange is the New Black and her own experience spending the night in a women's prison. To subscribe to this podcast, go to iTunes.com slash More to the Story. And while you're there, leave a review. I love feedback, I love hearing from you, and it helps with the ratings. More to the Story was produced out of my home office in Sacramento, California, with technical and audio support from my brother, TJ Santoro. Jeremy Marin, yes, my husband, he wrote and performed the theme song. You can find us online at moretothestorypodcast.com. Follow Under the Gumtree on Twitter at UnderGumtree. I'm Jana Marlies Marin, at just Jana on Twitter. Jana Marlies everywhere else. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon on the next episode of More to the Story. Tell me a story. Tell me truth. I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I'll tell mine to you. Balcony, drinking up our wine, talking.
stars are 